one. Hi everyone, my name is Connor Heffernan and welcome back to another edition of the BSSH Sport and History Podcast. I am very thankful and delighted to be joined by two people today, uh, Noah Reisman, uh, who is the Professor of History at Australian Catholic University, and Carolyn Laird, who is a journalist and, from what I did on my Google stocking, a recent documentary maker. Uh, if that is in- incorrect or out of date, please let me know. And today we're going to be speaking about Noah's recent article in Sport and History, which is entitled A History of Transgender Women in Australian Sports, 1976 to 2017. So I think I'll start by saying thank you for joining us on the podcast and maybe opening up to Noah to just give a brief kind of overview of the article itself. Sure. Thanks so much for, for having us, Connor. And I think I, if I, Caroline can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's award-winning documentary filmmaker. Am I not correct? That's right, Noah. Um, it is an award-winning one and it's done quite well. And thanks for having us on the show, Connor. But yes, it is. Um, um, so well. look, it, it, it's interesting because so I've never really seen myself as a sport historian and I still don't see myself as a sport historian. So I already feel like a bit of a fraud being here. But where the article came about was it's part of a a bigger project that I've been doing for the last four years or so on the history of transgender people in Australia, going back to the early 20th century. And the project's been looking especially at the changing legal, the medical, the social, and of course the lived and living experiences of trans and gender diverse people across that whole period. And, you know, it's a mix of archival research, um, personal archives, old newspapers, um, stuff in the National Archives, the Australian Queer Archives, which is based here in Melbourne, and of course, oral histories. And one of the amazing things about oral histories is you get to meet amazing people like Caroline and learn about their life stories. But where this particular article sort of came about was that I happened to interview Caroline, as well as Kirsty Miller, and Ricky Coughlin, who all live in Sydney now, like within three days of each other. Like, and it was not planned that way per se, but it was on this research trip to Sydney. I interviewed these three um, athletes. I probably shouldn't use the word athlete or Ricky would get mad at me because athlete for her really is does athletics. Um, sports people, these three sports people. And, and it, it, it just, and, and there were other people I had interviewed for this project as well, including Mayanna Bagger, who's also in the article. And there's a few other people who participated in grassroots sport that just for the sake of space, I couldn't really talk about. But the article really grew out of this, that experience for me of interviewing these three people happening to be three days apart. It was just like, we need to tell these stories because there's so much crap for lack of a better word going at circulating um and obviously caroline can speak to this as well unfortunately being on the receiving end of it but the myths of of trans women in sports all these myths about unfair advantage myths about safety risks myths about you know that they're destroying sport and lord knows what else and it was just interesting hearing these three people's stories and as well as these others and realizing trans people have been participating in sport for yogs. This is not something new. And in many cases, um, been doing it totally fine with non-issues. And a lot of the people making the noise are not the people who have been playing with them, are not the people who are actually on the ground and on the ground. Yes, there are certainly cases of transphobia, which obviously Caroline can speak to, um, and Kirsty definitely spoke to it. And, and, you know, other people in the article who, who I wrote about experienced transphobia, so I'm not trying to downplay that. But there's also a lot more support on the ground than I think the media would have you believe, and then the, the right wing would have you believe. 
And so that was really what was trying to get across with this article is to historicize and show that this has been going on for decades. And these are the lived experiences of those people. And also that the debates haven't changed much. The same arguments are being used now that were being used 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And, and so thank and maybe on that point, um, Carolyn, if I can ask you to come in and talk about your background, your experience in rugby, and I suppose what it was like being part of this um, article, because I know you are very vocal and kind of advancing the cause of transgender women uh, in sport in particular. So maybe how this article is a small segment of your broader work uh, within the sporting community. Yeah, well, um, as far as this article goes, and Noah, Noah approached me to, um, well, I suppose, as you said, he met us and it was for the Australian Catholic universities and uh, for the archives, is that right, Noah, if I remember? And um, uh, The Australian Queer Archives is, is part of it. And yeah, the interviews with people like Caroline are gonna go into the Australian Queer Archives when the project ends. Yeah, and so, and as you said, so for me, yeah, it was a big honor. Um, I think Kirsty Miller put my name forward to you if I remember correctly. And yep. um, and yeah, you hit the jackpot because it was myself, Ricky, and Ricky's like was role model for myself and Kirsty because she was competing before us. She was co competing even before I transitioned. And I saw um, her story in, in front of me in the newspaper. And I was like, wow, you can actually, you know, do that. And, um, and I was still playing, um, I think I was still playing football as a, as a male athlete and I was married as a male. <laughs> so, you know, it was like these possibilities, I didn't realize they were open to us, you know, and, and you know, I was always aware I was trans. So, yeah, so, um, but yeah, with as far as um, Noah goes, he really brought, um, he interviewed so many people and I just, it was such an informative piece and such a historical piece that I think it's been, it's been um, really well received and really well, uh, you know, received by people. And, you know, it's now, I would say, a go-to um, document that people can go to about the sports people in, in Australia. So, and did you want me to talk about myself as well, like um, coming up as a sports person, what I did? Okay. So, yeah, I went to um, St. Joseph's College, Hunters Hill. So that's um, a Catholic boarding school. So, um, and that's Australia's... Um, biggest or most successful rugby nursery they've got the most wallabies that have played you know for the wallabies and um yeah it was a pretty uh what's the word uh it was a, a pretty masculine environment and of course um everyone played rugby and so I'd, I'd played rugby league from a young age so with my older brother and his team so I went and did that obviously I played rugby at Joey's everyone played it you were forced to um, and I also was a very good sprinter at school. So I was a track and field athlete as well. And then um, once I left school, um, I continued on playing rugby. I played for um, East. So I was in a first grade Colts team. Um, we ended up making a final uh, beaten by Ramwick. And uh, they had two Wallabies in their team as in Phil Kearns and Ewan McKenzie. And my best friend from school was... Tony Daly, who formed that front row um, that won the 1991 Rugby World Cup. So they beat us in the final and they got beaten um, by Sydney Uni. But then I graduated and played um, for, played a few first grade games the following year for East and played um, some reserve grade. And then Tony Daly asked me to go and play for Gordon. So I played um, I played um, a season at Gordon and then I became, I was a fitness instructor in that. And, I, and that back then we didn't get um, paid 
to play. So obviously even playing club rugby and things like that. Um, so I was sort of like, I wasn't getting, I was like, wasn't a full-time employee. So I, I was a fitness instructor and I was earning pretty good money. So there was a worry about getting injured. So I decided to, to stop playing for a while. And then I played group six rugby league. I spent a year out of Oakdale. I got paid to play out there and um, that was really good. Um, got sick of all the macho, um, the macho and homophobic stuff. And I was starting to come into terms after that about my own being trans. So then I, you know, became an aerobics competitor. And, um, and that was really good because I was surrounded by people that were just, it didn't matter who you were or, you know, and I did that for a few years and then transitioned. And then I went back and played rugby league and rugby union. I represented New South Wales and women's rugby league. I won four nationals representing Sydney. I um, was nominated for the Sydney Morning, Sydney Morning Herald Women's Rugby Awards and I was a leading try scorer in the competition. But um, I could never make an Australian squad. Once they found out I was, an, I was trans, um, that sort of all went down um, the gurgle. So that, even though before they found out I was trans um, and I'd won awards, um, you know, I was a big hope for them. But then as soon as I was sort of, um, I was sort of banished. Um, and that, yeah, so, but I was, it was sort of interesting because I was still playing representative um, rugby for Sydney and my coach was still treating me really well. And he was trying to get me into the Australian squad. And I said, look, I don't want to play for those guys. Um, and one of those coaches was quite prominent. Um, oh, I can't don't really want to name him, but he's quite prominent in Australian rugby and in Australian women's rugby. And, um, you know, so I just, yeah, I was just ostracized, but my Sydney coach was trying to get me in there. And I said, look, I'm in the New South Wales Women's Rugby League team. I'm going to try to make the Gillaroos, which is the Australian Women's Rugby League team from that route. And um, and I didn't in the end, but, um, you know, I, I was I was sort of, I was in my early 40s by then and I was like, I'm happy with what I've achieved. And then I was doing my Masters Athletics. So I've won medals at world level at um, Masters, World Masters Athletics Championships too. So, and relays and in, in, in the throws, sprint relays in the throws. Yeah. So that's a snapshot of it. So, <laughs> yeah, so, I hope that explains it well. And if there's any more questions. Um... Perfect. No, that's great. And actually, I might bring both of you in on this because something I think that is a recurring theme in this, which is fascinating to me, um, just my own background, I study kind of health and fitness and uh, weightlifting, bodybuilding, powerlifting. Obviously, um, I'm not going to make the mistake of confusing New Zealand and Australia, but Laura Hubbard, the weightlifter, has kind of reignited this debate within my own um, field of study. But the, I'm going to use it in air quotes, the temerity of trans athletes to be good at what they do seems to be very problematic. Um, in a sense, I think Noah explains it very well, and the oral history do a great job of saying this, where there seems to be a point at which there may be some acceptance but once there is a oh they're good they're a good rower they're a good rugby player they're a good weightlifter then suddenly um so suddenly it's it's no longer acceptable and that that's not to say that there is a huge acceptance anyway but you know there seems to be a huge backlash at an athlete competing competitively um within the sport i don't, I don't know if this is more of a question or an observation but it is something that's very striking because i'm friends with um female uh, powerlifters who have dropped away from powerlifting because they don't want to deal with the transphobia, they don't want to deal with the, I suppose, abuse that they would get for being on a platform and competing at a high level. And they do have a sense of, I can be there, but I can't be on the podium or I can't be winning medals. And I think 
the article does a great job of showing like the staleness of this um of this prejudice just it, it seems to be a recurring issue i don't know if maybe Noah, you can speak about that from a historical context and, yeah, yeah and then caroline and, and from your own career i think caroline can definitely speak to that from her own experience so i'll leave that to her but certainly i mean it was that that line that ricky gave that i thought was a fitting one to end it on where ricky ricky said she was allowed to be good but she wasn't allowed to be too good and that certainly i think that was a recurring theme it's a recurring theme in the debates as well um for the last 40 some odd years it's sort of you know people want to compete for for various reasons and of course everyone wants to do their personal best and has different abilities and skill levels and 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 then, yeah, but all of a sudden, if you're a trans woman and you're suddenly, you're too good, then, well, that's not acceptable. And one observation that a colleague of mine made, and actually, Caroline, it was in relation to the section about you, was that there seemed to be, and, and I think this fits with Laurel Laurel as well, and, 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 um, and Kirsty as well, who copped a bit of transphobia, is it seems like there's even more vitriol, for lack of a better word, or the debates are more pronounced in sports that are traditionally associated with masculinity. So rugby, for instance, traditionally seen as a masculine sport. Weightlifting, traditionally seen as a masculine sport. Whereas, and, and Australian rules football, same thing. Whereas something like golf, which Mayanna played well, has always been seen as masculine or feminine. Tennis, both lawn bowls, I mean, mixed both. Netball. So it's just, I, I, I don't have an explanation for this. And I think more work probably needs to be done in this area to 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 explore it but there does seem like there's something about when trans women are being successful on women's teams in a sport that's traditionally associated with masculinity like that's even worse in some way i'd say worse in air quotes as well of course um but yeah i might hand it to, to caroline because you can obviously talk about how this this was your experience wasn't it being successful was that's what you were punished for yeah, well, it's interesting you say that, Noah, and going back to your question, Connor, because I actually have a perfect um, history, I suppose, like competing as a track and field athlete, I was successful. Um, I won gay games as a sprinter and I was winning bronze medals at state. Um, I won three years in a row, I won the 100 for my age group, 35 to 39s, and I won a 200 metre bronze. I wasn't winning and I, I think I got fourth one year at nationals and I started throwing and um and I was I won some national titles I'd quite often finish second and third um but yeah but I didn't seem to have the problems with my athletics as I did with my rugby but in saying that I was successful at athletics um and I did break a couple of state records I've since broken a few national ones but it's never really been an issue. I, none of my master's athletics colleagues, and I don't know whether that's their age because they're more mature, um, and maybe the rugby players. I was also played for the club I was playing for. Um, they weren't, there's a lot of Pacific Islanders there. So there's a lot of, and I don't, I hope I'm not sounding racist, but the culture is religion. And so they're not quite, I mean, a lot of them are hiding their own sexuality. So a lot of them can't come out and say, hey, I'm gay, because they're scared of the abuse and vitriol they'll cop at home. So some of that's probably internalised homophobia on their own part. So, and then I had a coach who was telling me not to tell anyone. So then I was being deceptive when they did find out. And then when they did find out, I was also defective <laughs> because, you know, I have something wrong with me because I'm trans. So I was, I was sort of on a hiding to nothing. My coach told me not to say anything because I wouldn't make any rep teams. 
And then I had that really, really good season. But in saying that, I trained my ass off as a sprinter and was running three and 400 metre reps, you know, back to back, you know, I'd do eight to 10 or whatever. And I was in my prime and I trained really hard. And that was after, that was, I was winning medals at state. And I was probably, I don't know if you know of a player called Ilya Green. Um, you you might, Connor. Um, you don't, do you know Noah? Noah? Connor, do you know? Oh, I know. Sorry. <laughs> Just Isn't snippets from friends who are in Oz. Sorry? Just, I just know snippets from friends who are in Oz, so you go ahead. Okay, yeah, she's an she's Olympic gold medalist, uh, women's sevens player. Now, she didn't make the current sevens team, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know. <laughs> it's just ridiculous, because she's such a good player. And she, she's very fast, and I was probably the equivalent of her when I was playing, because I, I had the natural speed that's going to be the born off a go, you know, um, especially when I was in, in space, you know, and so I think a lot of my teammates, like initially, and then the, I had the other thing of this player's come from nowhere because where did this player come from? Oh, so he wanted me to lie. And so I'd been playing in New Zealand. So I didn't want to do that. And I just said, look, I'm a sprinter, you know? And then, um, so that raises more issues. So, and then, the, oh, oh, she's only been playing five minutes. How come she can play like that and be good? And I won, as I said, I won my club's best and fairest that year. I won the whole club's men and women's um leading uh, leading uh, try score of the club. Those two awards were rescinded once they found out I was trans a year later. And then I was nominated for the Sydney Morning... My name was struck off the list. I've still got the pewter mugs. And I got nominated for this Sydney Morning Herald um, Women's Rugby Awards. The, the, girl, the, the, the woman that won it, um, Debbie Hodgkinson, two years later won, it, won the World Cup with Australia and was the Australian women's personality of the year now it's called IRB. it's now called world rugby player of the year but back then it was irb personality of the year so i think that ties into what Noah was saying about um women were sort of treated as a little bit of a uh and they still it's still i watch this women in leagues round on on the weekend so i don't know if you we had a women in league round and i just find it i i just laugh at it because i find it it's it's they're still wearing pink top pink jumpers and you know the men all the men were playing and they talk about women's in league for 10 minutes and then they'd, they'd you know have the the women who run the tuck shop and the women who does this and the journalists and this and that but none of the players there were some players mentioned because we do have an nrl semi nrlw semi-professional competition it's been up running for about three years now similar to the aflw's got in victoria and but i think we're still got a long way to go. And I think with women's sports that were dominated initially by men, I think, I don't know if the women think, well, you've had that advantage because men have been playing that forever. So you've got that advantage. Whereas, you know, whereas golf and athletics and women have been doing that for years. I'm not quite sure if that's a reason, but I wonder if that's got something to do with it. Um, yeah. I wondered if part of it might also be, and again, speculating here, I'm totally speculating here as a non-athlete, cisgender white dude, but if, if some of it might also have to do with the fact that there are studies that talk about women in sport in general, not just in those sports, always having to showcase their femininity, like to show that they've not been masculinized. And maybe for cisgender women in a sport like rugby, in a sport like Australian rules football, if there's this sort of fear, I don't know if it's the right word, but this, this notion that like, trans women are really men and that means that the sport is masculinized and we're trying to feminize it. I don't know if that makes sense. I wonder if that, I mean, I would need to theorize this, think this out more, but I do wonder if that's part of it as well is this sort of, they, they have to show that they're feminine by even though they're playing a masculine sport 
and now all of a sudden trans women are playing and what does that mean for this this masculinity versus femininity et cetera et cetera it's fitting into the label of the box isn't it sorry it's fitting into the label in the box that they've yeah, yeah exactly and it's interesting you say that because when i was playing a lot of my teammates when i played for new south wales when I played in the Sydney women's rep team, won those four nationals and uh, various other teams I played for, I played in Newcastle, you'd probably find probably 60% were lesbian women, probably two thirds. And now at the elite level, I don't know how, it's probably that like that at the elite level too, but now it's more, since the media's got involved and this and that, it's more um, the... Uh, heterosexual you know straight women are, are the ones you know they're, they're more predominant and i noticed that with the new south wales team a couple of years ago because it, the femmed it right down queensland smashed us and i went oh my god you know like pick the team on your merits not what people look like and it's for international like, listeners just so you know queensland and new south wales at rugby are like as a victorian we don't get involved <laughs> yeah well <laughs> well that's it you know but it's 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 like um, pick a team on its merits. Don't and I, and I felt the coach pick the teams. I don't know. I'm not saying he picked the teams on looks, but I, you know, and that's a danger because some of these I've heard stories about some of these male coaches, but I won't go there. But you know, it's it's. I, I do remember seeing um, there was a, a a lady called a player that I used to play against. Um, I'm trying to think of a name. Her surname's Victoria Latu. Um, and very very good player. Got. Women's the, the the rugby Australia women's player of the year two years running smashed it at nationals real big woman I played against her a couple of times actually towards the end of my career I played to mark her in the centres and she was she was phenomenal and I wasn't what I was before and I'd lost a bit of speed and things like that still did okay but you know I wish I'd have played her in my prime but um, she they had this photo shoot of all these players and she was pushed out to the side and you know there's maybe in one or two photos because she was quite masculine looking mm. and i was like you know i was just thinking really you know so i think with the media becoming involved and this and that and you know it's like anyone that doesn't fit the norm is just pushed aside and um so i suppose that's why maybe i don't know if the the um maybe some of the more masculine looking women now are getting selected you know I, I don't know it's just from what you can see and what from you can gather i don't know but well, um, it, it is fascinating to think about the um the policing of um mm. this very rigid idea of femininity so again being irish we have gaelic football we've actually sent a lot of gaelic footballers playing the afl but the women's league or the women's branch of gaelic football is called ladies football and it's always been called ladies football despite people saying this is a little bit you know early 1900s but even in Ireland, we have a fantastic boxer, Katie Taylor, who was one of the leading voices in the decision to object to women wearing skirts at the Olympics in boxing. Um, so it is interesting that there does seem to be very rigid policing. And I think both of you have mentioned the media at various points. And I'm wondering the role of the media, because so Noah, you mentioned, um, I can't remember the tabloid, it's called Truth, or is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, something like, I'm just wondering the role of the media, because Again, coming, I've just been in Texas and the Republicans seem to have discovered that transphobia is a fantastic rallying point um, politically that's being fed by the media as well. So I'm wondering, in Australia, all I'm thinking in my head is this Rupert Murdoch is just flashing like a red light in my head. I'm just wondering, 
the media landscape is it similarly divided on political lines where the representation of trans athletes is very much a politicized issue and has that been the case since the 70s i suppose when the article picks up the very short answer is yes but historically look present day unfortunately 100 percent um in the past there was a bit more complexity to it so um for instance going back to the first examples that i found were um around the time of renee richards so you know she made global headlines renee richards um the tennis player 1976 and 77 onwards um, and I found buried in a scrapbook that someone had kept of, of various examples of newspaper clippings of trans people and not just sport, but there was this article about Lee Veris. And it was from Truth. I'm pretty sure it's from Truth. The headline had been, had been um, of, the, of the masthead had been cut off, but just the, the layout and the font and the, and the headlines it suggested it was Truth. But and, and I've read another article about the media in the 70s that's been published in Gender and History, if people are interested, sorry, spruiking there. But um, one thing that's really interesting, if you look at the media from the 70s, is truth was a, was a massive tabloid. It's, it's, it's more like um, the New York Post or even like, like it's not just, it's not like your right wing, but it is. I'm trying to think, like, I don't think there's a contemporary example, at least in Australia, there's nothing like truth anymore. Um, the news of the world might have been a British equivalent of it. Like, it wasn't just right wing, but it was also just like shock and awe sort of stuff. Like, and maybe the National Enquirer kind of in the US, but National Enquirer was very celebrity focused. So anyway, I'll stop trying to make parallels, which are probably just wrong. But you had with truth in the 1970s, often these shocking and transphobic headlines but when you read the actual articles, depending on the degree to which the trans person participated in the article, the actual text could often be quite respectful. And this article about Lee Veris was actually really respectful. And it was talking about how this, this trans woman who was living in a rural community in Western Australia was playing basketball, was playing netball, and was like really accepted in this community. And there were a few people who were a bit confused, but she was Lee and they all loved her. And it was clear. And so the actual article was quite respectful. And I think that's in part because Lee participated in the article. Now I'm not trying to say every article in the seventies about trans people was respectful, but there was a pattern I noticed in the broader project that when the trans people participated in the article, once you got past the headline, it wasn't necessarily so awful. If they didn't participate in the article voluntarily, then you had some pretty bad stuff. And then the case of Nolina Tame that Caroline alluded to. Nolina was um, the founder of the Australian Transsexual Association, which was, at the time she founded it, around 1978, give or take, it was a support group in Sydney. Um, Roberta Perkins took over after Nolina, and Roberta sort of transformed it into a, an activist group. And Roberta Perkins is probably Australia's most prominent transgender activist in history. Um, she passed away a few years ago. But Nolina um, was involved in her Lawn Bowls Club. And when the people at the Lawn Bowls Club found out she was trans, it was a women's Lawn Bowls Club, they, they kicked her out. But again, coming to the media, Nolina, um, often in the, the tabloids, shock, shock headlines, but the text sort of neutral. But Nolina did an article with the magazine Women's Day, which is one of the sort of women's interest magazines. And it was this article about this lovely grandmother named Nolina who happened to be trans. And, she just wanted to play lawn bowls and she like played with, she, she knitted doilies or something like that if, if memory serves. And, you know, in, she had this very feminine presentation and that was something the article very much emphasized. And I think that comes into this history as well is that 
um, a lot of the, the trans women that I've met and also who've appeared in the media very much did subscribe to a stereotypical idea of femininity. And I'm not saying that as a critique, it's just, a, just an observation. And that presentation was really important to them. And often they'd play it up to, to emphasize the fact that the, their femininity. Um, and so, so again, you had this respectful media coverage of Molina. With Ricky in the 90s, you had a, a mix, like some articles are respectful, some not so much, but it's more now that you're finding less respectful stuff. The ABC, which is our equivalent of the BBC, they still do respectful stuff. I know Caroline's participated in some ABC interviews. The ABC is pretty good about it, but oh my God, the Murdoch press is absolutely horrific the way it covers this issue in Australia. It's absolutely disgusting. Um, and, and I'm not afraid that, and, and the Murdoch press unfortunately dominates the Australian landscape with the exception of the ABC. The Guardian is another interesting one. The Guardian UK um, is, is well known for being transphobic. Um, a lot of turf articles, trans-exclusionary radical feminists. The Guardian Australia actually isn't. The Guardian Australia actually is quite trans-inclusive. I don't know how much they've written about sport. Maybe, Caroline, you might have noticed more than me. I don't think they talk about it as much, but the Guardian online in Australia is pretty okay, which is quite a contrast to the Guardian UK. But yeah, it's interesting. Nowadays, the landscape is such that with the exception of the ABC, unfortunately, it is a lot of myths. It's a lot of rubbish. And it's a lot of looking at so-called experts who don't do anything involving trans women in sport, who might not even be doing anything involving trans women at all, but are, and, and it's not just with sport. The I know this podcast is focused on sport, but the, the war that the Murdoch press in Australia has been waging against trans people in the last four years since the marriage equality passed has been absolutely atrocious. Um, and sport is just caught up in that. And I know I've been rambling for a while, but I'll just throw in one other thing, is that using sport as, uh, and trans women in sport as a lightning rod over broader issues is nothing new either. I didn't get into a great deal about it in the article, um, in part because of space and in part because I've talked about it in a different article that I had published a few years ago in the Australian Journal of Politics and History. But there was a, a Senate inquiry in Australia in 1996-97 into sexuality discrimination. Now, the, the title of the inquiry was sexuality discrimination, but it actually involved transgender as well. That was in the terms of reference. This 300-page inquiry document comes out it's it's really good like i i actually think politicians today should like dust it off and read it because it's so applicable still today two pages devoted to the issue of trans women in sport relatively respectful and sort of said the jury's out on this this is in 1997 it sort of said the jury's out on this might need to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis there had been submissions from a few organizations that were transphobic um, against women trans women participating in sport two pages out of 300 page report that became the lightning rod that the conservatives the right-wing politicians and the media used to undermine this entire report so they've been doing this for 25 years it's nothing new and it's because in Australia and probably in other countries as well, the sport is seen as sacrosanct. Sport and the military, Anzac, are sacrosanct. They're these you know, sacred sacred things. And so the, the right wing knew, ah, well, we can use this as the wedge to undermine this broader issue of LGBTIQ rights. And sorry, that was a far too long an answer. I'll hand over to Caroline. No, it, was, it was really good, Noah, because I segueing in with that, because I know with um, the safe schools, um, they were talking about um, penis tucking so for trans women who are pre-op or you know or not so 
prior to their surgery or not having a surgery. Say like for me, when I was teaching fitness class, I used to, I used to tuck because I didn't want that showing. I didn't want people looking at me in a, in a society where it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't care, you know, but um, once you decide to transition, you, I, for me, I wanted to be seen as a female. So of course, you know, I would tuck, you know, and, and they sexualized that, the conservatives, also with the um, chest binding for the trans men. And they sexualized that too. There's nothing sexual about it. You're doing mm. it just so you fit into society. So idiots like them won't give you a hard time. And, you know, and just so- a quick context for the international people. Sorry, jump in, Carol, but the Safe Schools was a program that yeah. was uh, an anti bullying and LGBTIQ inclusion program funded federally, rolled out in, in high schools and some primary schools across the country. But in 2016, the right wing media, the Murdoch press, and the right wing politicians made it a lightning rod. Um, and there's a if people want to know more about it, there's a great quarterly essay written by Benjamin Law that goes through the whole debacle of, of how the right wing destroyed this program, which was actually really good at supporting yeah, students. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you, Caroline. It's not pretty oh, right. bullying. No, that's fine, Noah. It's not <laughs> bullying for, for LGBTIQ students, but they obviously want bullying for LGBTIQ students. But um, the other thing was, as a journalist, as a, as a transgender journalist, now I've gone to Maclay College in, I was qualified fitness instructor. My other role what i do is i get paid to care for two family members so but i do my own journalism on the side so while i was started caring i used to be a fitness instructor up until about 2016 i was still teaching up until about a year or two ago um some classes um but i decided to because i was doing a lot of writing and things like that on lgbtiq issues and yeah i'm a journalist but i'm also an activist on this topic um, and I was told not to be by a lot of my lecturers at, at the Bay College that are journalists. And I was told, if you keep on posting that on social media, you will never get a job. And I was like, well, I didn't come here for a job. You know, I came here to improve my skills. But in saying that, when I did do the, when I did um, do my diploma and then uh, matriculated to my bachelor the following year, I had an internship with the women's game and I was writing for them. And I was, I was, um, covering all sports, AFL, rugby league, uh, rugby union, um, did a little bit of athletics, uh, some other sports, some of the disability sports um, that are in the Paralympics. And um, yeah, but I, and then my name was put forward to New South Wales Rugby League, who I played for, for New South Wales. And, um, you know, I was actually head, my, our, our head of um, journalism at Maclay, Fiona West put my name for because they actually asked for me. They wanted me to do some weekend work for them. I never heard anything. And the only thing that I can surmise is that um, maybe they found out I was trans and, oh, we don't want her, you know. And so you can't even be trans. And I was told by some of my lecturers at Maclay, you know, just keep your mouth shut. You're fine. You look, you look fine. You know, that no one needs to know. But that doesn't quite cut it because I've had jobs in the past where I might fly by for a year or you know but someone finds out and then you're treated like as person persona non gratia and then it comes back to the deceptive and the defective you know and so um it's the whole structure of that industry that's not only murdoch it's the whole structure that you still got to be you know you look at the cover the coverage of the olympics how often did they show you know um like they they showed um, Tom Daly won a gold medal. It was quickly on there for about five seconds. They didn't, you know, they didn't mention him being LGBTIQ or any of the other athletes. So Laura, I, I, I don't think I saw Laurel Hubbard on the maid coverage. She might I think she was on the app. Um, you know, so there's still that 
coverage that oh, you mean, yeah the actual the coverage that on channel seven wasn't very good in australia <laughs> so overall. what i ended up doing i went to the app so the app so because you know obviously i've got a track and field background and the seven yeah. rugby. so i would and i mean i love the swimming i love you know um there's a lot of sports i do love but i also love the sports that aren't quite mainstream too you know like and, and so i'd go to the app sometimes and i worked out which things you could watch but it was like, and then Tams and Lewis is going on about all these DSD athletes. So, you know, you've heard about what DSD athletes, difference of sexual development. They're like intersex athletes, like Custis Semenya. And, and she's bagging them. So I got stuck into her on Twitter and said, I don't know, you might have liked my tweet, I think, um, Noah. And I said, I said, you know, how dare you? And I got stuck right into it. And I've had dealings with her before. And she actually apologized to me. I'm going to be quite respectful. But it was about um, uh, Nabomba. Oh, what's her name? Namomba. Um, she. I'm trying to think of her first name. Um, Christine, I think it is. Mabomba. That's her name. Christine Mabomba. And she won a silver medal for the 200 meters women's. And her, she was. She couldn't compete in the 400 because the IAAF and the IAC said no. Um, it was more the IAAF, which is Sebastian Coe, Tams and Lewis, and um, Daly Thompson and people like that who are so transphobic. And so anyone that you know, if their whole thing is if you don't fit. The image of what a female is, then you're out. But they got rid of Casa Semenya. So you know who Casa Semenya is. She won the 800 at the last Olympics. I can't remember the, the lady's name, the woman who won it this time. I'm trying to think. She was silver got was from Great Britain, but she ran the, she ran one one hundredth faster than Casa Semenya. So how come Casta got kicked out and this woman didn't? You know, it's like it's like double standards. It's like you don't fit what we want and the, and what you look like, so you're out you know and, why was the the runner not allowed to run the 400 but was allowed to run the 200 oh they reckon because i think she she was running 48 something she would have smashed the 400 mm. and you know um i think her times were i think it's it's four eight fifteen they're not allowed to run because they think they've got that um anaerobic and aerobic advantage so which um, because of the elevated testosterone levels for someone with... But you don't have that advantage in quotes at the 200? Well, I don't know. You know. That's my point. I mean, and that's that, just so inconsistent well, to me. I spoke to, to Kirsty today. She rang me today and she's just speaking to Joanna Harper. Joanne, Joanna Harper. And the, that whole thing has been thrown out now. They're going to go back to the max VO2 tests, which I did before I... When I first came back to do athletics, just in case it came back on me and my levels were right because females have less oxygen in the blood than males do. And mine was 35.5 millimeters, milliliters of oxygen per minute, um, which is right within the female range. And that's what they're, that's what um, they're thinking maybe going back to now instead of the nanomoles. But, you know, what they've realized now is that the nanomole thing doesn't really work because all this testosterone does, there can be an advantage in the fact what it does, people think, oh, you've got more testosterone, you must be stronger. You know, yeah, I've got more muscles, you know. But basically, <laughs> but basically, it allows you to recover better. So your energy and your body systems recover more quickly. And then you become so you can put in more multiple sessions and train smarter. And that's what Lance Armstrong, all those athletes did, you know. And that's um so. You know, it doesn't always equate to like if I if someone goes and takes 
testosterone and they sit on the couch, they're not going to get any benefits. You've actually got to put the work in and then you've got to be blessed genetically. And, you know, there's so many variables. So, you know, so they're starting to realize that this probably isn't a good way to measure. So, but there's going to be more set on that down the track. So Kirsty was telling me about that today. So um, I've probably said, um, now I'm probably talking too much. <laughs> no, no, no yeah. this, this is perfect. And it's preempting a lot of questions um, that I have. And I think it's interesting talking about the legislators or, you know, the, the ones governing uh, at the top and then the athletes um, below them, you know, in this kind of metaphorical hierarchy, something that comes through the article and then something that, again, tangentially from the fitness field that I find interesting is there often seems to be a disconnect between the athletes competing and those outside of the sport. So, for example, in America, there's a very well-known trans activist, Janae Kroc, who used to be, um, who transitioned from being Matt Kroc into Janae Kroc, published a wonderful, or was part of a wonderful documentary called Transformer. Um, Matt Kroc, there were articles published about him as a competing powerlifter along the lines of, Matt Kroc is more of a man than you. At the same time, Janae was well-known within the powerlifting community as a female lifter. Eventually, there was, and I'm resting to use the word, an outing, and I know that's a very um, problematic term, but, you know, someone threatened to go to the public and out Janae before she was ready. In the case of Laura Hubbard, Emily Campbell, British female weightlifter, did a brilliant job of saying to critics of Laura Hubbard, like, you don't care about women's weightlifting. Like, you just discovered this sport, you know, 10 minutes ago. Don't pretend that now you care about equality, now you care about participation, now you care about representation, because we're underfunded and that's never been an issue. And there's an American female weightlifter whose name um, slips my mind, who effectively said the same thing, like, don't pretend that this is about equality within the sport. We support Laura. You know, if she win, gets on the podium, great. If she doesn't, great. Like, we don't care. It's another athlete to beat. So I'm wondering, maybe Noah or Caroline, whichever, whoever wants to jump in, there does seem to be a very real connect between a majority, uh, you know, there, there seems to be more support among the competing athletes. And then outside of that bubble, for want of a better phrase, that's when it starts to get, seems to get a little bit sticky because people who know the athletes in question just know them as the rugby player, the weightlifter, the powerlifter, you know, the track and field athlete, whatever the case may be. And the, the disconnect or the broader transphobia seems to be from people who, whether they care about the sport or not, seem to take a position of defending supposedly defending the sport and um, hopefully that makes sense it's kind of rambling but there yeah. does seem to be a disconnect between inside and outside I, I think i would agree with that with the caveats and yes, certainly sir. that came across from from the interviews with with um well all the interviews i did with sports people but with caveats caroline can talk about in her experience some of those caveats kirsty miller is another really good one who i know is really good friends with caroline and as caroline said kirsty put me on to caroline kirsty sort of the experience that, that Kirsty talked about with transphobia was she was sort of accepted until she wasn't. And it was often with people like, it was sort of like once people for whatever reason turned on you, then the fact that you were trans was something they used against you. If, if, if that makes sense. Um, that certainly seemed to be experience that, that Kirsty had was that you know, like the opposition they were playing against, they were being transphobic. Kirsty's teammates didn't care until Kirsty um, from the team's perspective, stepped out of line by by using social media to stand up for herself, and then all of a sudden her teammates turned against her as well. So th there's there's that sort of so that that's what I mean by the caveat that it sort of seems like there was support until there wasn't. But certainly Ricky had had almost unanimous support, and the people who were leading the charge against Ricky 
um, there was an organization called the Women in Sport Foundation, and there was a particular um, athlete, the people who never competed against Ricky, they didn't know Ricky. And Mayanna certainly said the same thing, that the women she competed with, she knew them, she talked to them, they didn't have a problem with it. It was these people well beyond who, and again, this goes to, I guess, what I was saying earlier, that often sport was being used by people who didn't have a vested interest in sport. They were using sport as part of a broader transphobic agenda. And I think that's still often the case. I think it's a slight side note to your question before I, before I shut up and hand back to Caroline again. But one other thing that I think is really important is having spoken to Caroline and Kirsty and Mayanna and Ricky and a few other people who, who I didn't talk about in the article, is that I think, it, and, and if I'm putting words in Caroline's mouth, please correct me, but I did get a sense from our conversations that everyone respected that there was probably a need for some sort of, I don't think limits the right word. I don't know if restriction is the right word, but uh, some sort of understanding that, that there might be some, um, maybe restriction is the right word, of whether that restriction be, you know, um, a certain number of years, whether or not uh, there was sort of an understanding that a person who who identifies as trans and may have made a social transition but hasn't done any medical interventions probably there there might need to be restrictions or limitations on this this was sort of universal amongst everyone where that line should be drawn there were very different ideas and i think um Mayanna, for instance i think probably had the strictest ideas of where that line should be drawn before trans people should be allowed to participate other people um, perhaps, perhaps Kirsty um, and Caroline may have had a bit more um, looser, looser might not be right, more liberal of when they should be allowed to participate. And everyone also agreed that there need to be different rules for professional and amateur, and much more inclusion at the amateur level. Where that drawn should be line should be drawn, if at all, should be a much lower bar for amateur. But everyone respected that there needed to be something, but nobody supported a full ban. In every, like in any sport, there was always sort of this understanding. And even in the histories, looking at trans activists who were involved in sport, whenever sport came up, most of them in, in various forums would say things like, like, we just want to get on with our lives. Like you, you anti-trans people are using sport as if this is like the big be all end all and we're invading and you're using sport. Most of us want to get on with our lives. And we kind of understand that there probably need to be some limits, but there can't just be a ban. And there can't just be a, a full stop barring us and inclusion and participation is important, but we respect that maybe there needs to be a line at some stage as to when. Uh, I, I, Carolina, again, if I'm putting words in your mouth and you, and you don't agree with that, then please correct me. Yeah, no, I, I think we're all the same. Um, well, we've all got like, we're all different. We all think they should be some, they should be, trans women should be included in sport, but we all have varying degrees of what that means so for for me you know like i believe if you've had surgery and transition um, after a period of time which that's going to take you two or three years anyway so um you know you can compete with you know of course you've got to fit them in those range but you will once you're, you've had your surgery and all that your blood levels will reflect the female athlete um for someone who's transitioning or, or is only wants hormone therapy and doesn't want to have the surgery then maybe there needs to be a little bit of stricter guidelines and the fact that maybe they have to be more monitored like um wada and asada does with drug testing 
you know, because if they go off their hormones over a period of time, then yeah, the strength gains may come back. Um, for non-binary people, like Quinn won a gold medal for Canada in the, in the women's football. Now Quinn identifies as non-binary, so they're between the sexes. So, but they're happy to be. Correct me if I'm wrong, but physically female, and still play in that female space. But they see their identity as as a bit of as as between the genders, you know. So they're happy in that space. But um, I actually play cricket because I I play cricket. Um, I play second grade, and sometimes I play for third grade, which is a more social level. Um, second grade, we play on turf. We have the up and up, up and comers come through. And when I play third grade. It's a bit more social. And we played against um, someone who was non-binary and presented as a male, had their fingers paint, fingers painted, had the, um, you know, a bracelet. And they were playing for unis, which is Alex Blackwell's club. So Alex Blackwell's a former Australian cricketer, Connor, and quite um, quite vocal in this space. Um, does some work with Cricket Australia and also commentates on the Big Bash League over here, the w, w big, uh, Women's Big Bash League over here. And I think probably international fixtures. Um, so yeah, so um, she had, she was quite instrumental in bringing the the inclusion for, in Cricket Australia for the transgender and non-binary policies. So we played against this person who was non-binary, and even my own teammates came in and asked me, "Well, who's this person?" And I said, "Well, I I don't have a, a full idea, but I presume they can play because Cricket Australia have an, have an inclusive policy. Now that was at a community level, so there's no problems there, you know. And yeah. um, you know, and even at an elite, you know, like um, you know, I suppose at an elite level it might be a bit different. Um, this person wasn't a superstar. Obviously, they wouldn't have been good enough to play at an elite level in women's cricket anyway. But um, you know, if you uh, so yeah, so I suppose. Um, but then then again, you, you know, you have limits. I mean, people go, oh, what if Mitchell Johnson turns up and um, do you follow cricket at all, Connor? Um, Noah? No, so no, you, not, you, not you, I don't follow it, but I know who Mitchell Johnson is. <laughs> okay, he's, he's really fast bowler. He can knock, hmm. he can knock, um, knock your lights out while you're batting against him. Brett Lee's another one. He um, took out um, your transphobe in the UK. What's his name? Um, Piers, Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan, yeah. I was cheering for. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Whoops. <laughs> um, but um, he broke, he broke. Piers Morgan's arm in the nets because he had a bet, yeah, and um, that was <laughs> they were filming it and everything, and um, they had it on the Channel Nine lunchtime show when the, for the Test match Australia versus might have been England, um, Ashes, and uh, if you had a Mitchell Johnson turn up, then you know people go, well, what if Mitchell Johnson turns up or you know uh, Brett Lee or someone like Je Jeff Thompson if you go past decades our fastest bowlers or some of the West Indians. But are they really going to turn up and play community cricket anyway? You know, so um, that's just it. It's 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 feeding into the myth that like men are just going to decide to transition so they can play sport, and it's like they're not. And if you talk to any trans person, including Caroline, and Caroline can speak to this more. I mean, the amount of internal struggle you go through, and what you'd have to deal with in a society that discriminates against you, it's like no one is going to do that. So like those examples are thrown out as the sort of like, this is why we can't be inclusive. When, like I said, amongst at least the trans people I know, there's this much more realistic, like, look, most of us accept there might, might somewhere need to be a line drawn more so at elite than at community. But you're using, you're throwing out these ridiculous examples to try and ban people full stop, when, which are never gonna happen because 
that's not the trans experience and that's not what people do. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, we've only got a, um, a, a narrow shelf life where actually, once you're transitioned, that is surgery, and you've got no receptors to make any. So it's like... Um, it's like being um, a eunuch, you know, and you blow up. So, you know, I put weight on, but that's middle-aged spread too. I put on weight compared to what I was a few years ago. And, you know, but I, I look at, I've got, I had a female staffy. Now she got on the couch and she'd been dissexed and all that. She got as fat as the three years, you know, she, she, she died after three years, but she had health complications. I have a male staffy, her son, who now is on the couch and, and he's put no much nowhere near as much weight as um, I know I'm talking about dogs. It's different to humans, but I suppose the metals and the physiology. So we, we tend to blow up um, because the testosterone is low. And the, the further along I was, my sporting career was going along, even as a sprinter, people I was beating 10 years before that I beat at gay games and won the gold. Um, one girl, one lady I competed against, um, Daniela Oziander, who's a friend of mine, um, she won the bronze. I beat her by a second. 10 years ago, 10 years later, I was competing against her. So that was 2002, I think in 2012 or 2013, Australian Masters Nationals, running against her again in the hundreds. She was running a similar time, 14-2, 14-3. I was running 15-5 or something, and she smashed me. You know, so, you know, because your testosterone levels dropped, even if mm. I now take... um. A, a testosterone supplement cream because my testosterone is so low. It's like it's 0.5 nanomoles without taking anything. It's about two, two, two nanomoles with taking this um, Androfem cream I take. And it's just so low, you know. And um, I'm still okay when I throw now because like shot put and all that because I'm still quite good at it and the strength levels are affected but not as much as I can't run out of sight now. I'd run 100 metres. I'd be lucky to run it in 20 seconds. <laughs> You know, whereas, you know, was I was running 13 fives back when I was in my prime as a female athlete, as a male athlete, I was running low 11s, 11 twos, you know, 11 ones, you know, as a, as a male athlete, 50 seconds for the 100, 400. So, you know, it's, it's, um, so that evolution and, um, and then there's another fellow that I used to play football against and he, he does master athletics. He's my age and he's about, he was, I think last time I sprinted, he was about three seconds faster than me. Mm. And I doubt I played football against him. We are uh, playing uh, East versus St. George. Um, I think it was a second grade match back in 86. We would have been a similar speed. So, you know, like there's no way if he was three seconds faster, I wouldn't have been on the wing, you know, playing against him. So, mm. you know, over a hundred meters. So it, it, it's, people don't realize how much speed and how much, Especially, um, we lose speed and endurance. They're the first things to go. And then the strength, it goes down to a degree. But I'm still fairly strong for a female athlete. And I've got a torn rotator cuff at the moment. So um, I can't do anything at the moment, but rest until I have my elective surgery. Um, but I can bench press when, when I'll get back into it. I can bench press probably 60, 70 kilos, one, rep, one max rep. Well, as a male athlete, I was bench pressing 110 one max rep. So, you mm. know, I probably lost about a third of my strength. So, I mean, yeah. the other thing that I think it, 
we, we probably don't have time to get into it, but I know Caroline has been quite active, and, and me as well, fighting the World Rugby, which has, came out with an archaic proposed ban, essentially. Again, well, well yes, this, this is what I ban. wanted to. Um, oh, this is what, what I wanted to come on to because something that I've been doing with students, especially I was in Texas, and unfortunately, a lot of them got their information on trans athletes from Joe Rogan. So when we were talking about Laura Hubbard, they were saying things along the lines of like, "Well, why can't Lu Jiao Jun, who's a fantastic male Chinese weightlifter?" Why can't he put on a wig, claim he's a female and get on the platform? And I'm saying, well, no, let's let's break it down and let's go through what the weightlifting standard. And it is, Caroline, one, you know, one of the standards they mentioned, you know, post-op, two years, check your testosterone, and then we'll go from there. But something that I thought was useful for the students was to go through, okay, let's pick boxing, rugby, soccer, cricket, weightlifting, you know, powerlifting, and see just the diversity of standards and metrics and something Noah in the article like a lot of the sporting bodies seem to be firefighting you know in the period that you're looking at where the a controversy arises and then it's kind of like a oh crap um you know let's kind of scramble in the dark and that still seems to be the case where the standards for boxing are very different to the standards for world rugby and Carolyn, you've been very good i think on pushing the prejudices and bias in that world rugby um decision so i think maybe if we can get you to talk on that and then just i would encourage listeners to think about the institutional variance within sports because i said there's a wonderful website and i can't remember the name which breaks down in like three to four lines what every sports uh, regulations are and the diversity in uh, requirements is just jaw-dropping because really i know we can talk about you know, the anaerobic fitness that one would need for sprinting versus the, or pardon me, the aerobic fitness for sprinting versus the anaerobic fitness for weightlifting, etc. But the diversity and variance shows that there is such confusion at an institutional level, which then feeds ignorance and prejudice that someone, you know, students could very earnestly say to me, could a world heavyweight weightlifter tr- throw on a wig and then, you know, smash it on the women's platform in, in all earnest and, you know, not not being aware of the process because I think it is underreported. So maybe on the end of my rambling, if you can just maybe talk about institutional um, requirements and maybe looking at world rugby and how even in that instance, that's out of kilter with a lot of other sports. Yeah, well, can I just say chromosomally, they used to test like a chromosomal test for athletes and that's now been taken away so they you know everyone was being xx or xy and as mm. there were there were women who had given birth to children who had ambiguous you know um uh, chromosomes so you know like so they had to withdraw that one and so when i think the problem with is with these people they never they've never seen a trans woman so they don't realize that a trans woman can look um you know, like a, like most trans women can look female, you know what I mean? And you've gone through that process to do that. But also their view of a woman is, you know, very narrow and, you know, um, as far as, so what I'm trying to say with the chromosomes, you know, there's a lot of women out there that are probably, that are playing international rugby and, you know, they've built their body up, bodies up themselves. And this blanket ban of the safety issue, I just think it's a smokescreen because um, it's a smokescreen. This is, this is how I, um, this is what I usually say these days is what the naysayers say is we're not, 
women, therefore we're men. Men are stronger than women, you know, in every category, doesn't matter which male it is or which female, men can always. So it's almost coming from a chauvinistic point of view. And, but we're, we're called biological males, you know, which I don't see myself as a biological male. I mean, yeah, I was born with XY chromosomes, but I've taken the steps to, you know, transition, have my, have my hormone therapy. I took anti-androgens and anti-testosterone, had my surgery. I've been so many. So um, I just see it as, you know, it's, it's basically, um, discrimination and their bias but it's dressed up is, is is in saying well you have an advantage because you're not a woman and there they get they run down that and they compare men and women against each other they don't compare trans women with women or they don't compare you know trans men with men they compare men and women against each other and we're categorized as men so um yeah i'll, I'll hand over to noah because um this one keeps me really flabbergasted and upset so yeah. Oh, look, I think Caroline's nailed it. And it's just, I mean, what, what I was going to say before, and I think Caroline just hinted at is, is trans women come in all shapes and sizes. Cisgender women come in all shapes and sizes. Non-binary people come in all shapes and sizes. And the problem with a blanket ban, like World Rugby had proposed, and thank goodness that a lot of the, the big rugby playing nations rejected it, um, there's all the politics there. That's probably another story, but um, it just, yeah, like Caroline said, they basically, they took studies um, about testosterone in cisgender men and studies about testosterone in cisgender women and were like, X, therefore Y. And it's like, hold on, you're comparing not even apples and oranges, you're comparing like apples and chocolate or something like, it's just like, this doesn't, this doesn't stack up. And, and, in their so-called consultations, they didn't invite any trans women players at all, had no interest in listening to them. There was one trans person who I, I tip my hat to them, um, fighting the good fight, um, who wasn't invited because they were a trans person. They were invited because they were um, nominated by International Gay Rugby. And International Gay Rugby was like, well, we should have a trans person represented here because nothing about us without us us being in this case trans people and anyway that the world rugby i think was was a was a really bad uh, it was an example of just misapplication of science not consulting not considering legal frameworks which uh, you know in a lot of the rugby the uh, a lot of the rugby playing nations if they were to accept that ban it would be illegal including in australia it would violate the sex discrimination act um and in, in aotearoa new zealand as well Carolyn looks like she's about to jump in. <laughs> I know. I was just about to say, yeah. If I was a current player, I would be. I would say I'll see you in court. But in saying that, what they used to do is they just you don't get picked anyway because um, usually the national coaches and that have a prejudice against you anyway. Once they know you're trans, so it, it, nothing's really changed there anyway. And if you um, fly under the radar and they don't know you're trans, and I heard that I. I did hear there was a player from the Six Nations, the UK, that was trans. And I, some of my Australian teammates, because I played in Sydney rep teams with a lot of Australian players, we won four nationals and, um, you know, half the team was in the Australian team. And, you know, and I'd hear things about a certain player from a certain country was a trans player, but she flew under the radar, you know, and um, 
And the thing was, see, my thing is I added myself to a coach, so I'm an idiot because, but I was getting picked on at the time. By, I was getting picked on by players and this coach, but I was caught up in a power struggle between his club and who had a lot of Australian players. They wanted me to go play for them and to go from my club. And then I went back to my other club and I got caught up in all that. And then they appointed him as my rep coach. And I was like, oh, really? So, and then he started picking on me, not picking me for the Sydney team. I was on the bench all the time and he had a go at me one day. You've only been playing for one year. I was an idiot. Sent off an email and and I added myself and then he just went around and told everyone. So, you know, and so if you can fly under the radar, but that's that's the option. You just have to fly under the radar. Well, let's, let's even pick that apart, flying under the radar. Well, that means she's playing. If, if this is true, she's playing. And so I don't think she's playing anymore. She's retired now. Okay, but, this, but even this, she was playing at an equal level, so not suddenly the standout dominant figure who's destroyed. That's what I mean. Like it's just a person who is playing and getting on with it. And like that, that's what I mean. The, the the ridiculousness behind it and the total ban. Well, same with international gay rugby. They invited me to a meeting, and I said to Tucker, "I said I haven't never injured anyone. I played for ten years. You know, <laughs> I haven't injured anyone." And then I put a video up of all these highlights, and I had about four major injuries. I had a bone bruising of the knee. I had um, L four L five. My back, um, I had a back injury, um, disc problem, um, and I had another couple of injuries. You know, that's uh, the, the bone bruising kept me out for twelve months. I got hit really hard by you know, like. <laughs> But I never injured. I never injured anyone um, seriously. I mean, you know, I had a dislocated finger. So, you know, and players do get injured, but I didn't injure anyone anymore. Although it was interesting when I did come out as trans. Um, well, when I was out of as trans, when I told that coach, we were playing a game against um, a, 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 one of the players from Warringah broke her leg, and she was a former Australian player. She was trying to make the World Cup team the following year. And I was on the other side of the field and our other winger was also um, a rep player and she also got nominated for the Herald Award the year after I did. She tackled it. I was the one that started getting accused and blamed for it and I was on the other side of the field for breaking her leg and I wasn't even there. But because I was trans, all of a sudden I was visible. Oh, Caroline must have done it. I was on the other <laughs> side of the field. You know, like, it's just, it's just beggar's belief. So sorry. The safety smoke screen, the safety smoke screen thing. I mean, just two things I'd, I'd say to that. One, if this really is about safety, then this isn't about trans. It's about all women, all bodies. And I'm not endorsing that. I'm not endorsing that um, per se. I'm just saying it's proof that it's the smoke screen. And it's another example of policing trans women's bodies. If it were broader, then it would be about policing all women's bodies. And I guess just the one other thing is looking, again, let's look to history examples like Caroline and in other sports, people like Kirsty, Ricky, Mayanna, et cetera. Again, trans women have been playing these sports for decades. I'm, I'm sure Caroline is not the only trans woman who has played rugby in Australia. I'm sure she's not the only one globally. And this has been a non-issue. It's only an issue because the, the right wing and the trans folks want it to be an issue. It's not an issue. If you, you know, if you actually go and talk to people and listen, not just talk, listen, listen, then you'd find that actually this is, for the most part, a non-issue. Can I, can I also say, it's not just rugby. Like, you look at, um, there was this athlete in Western Australia. She was, she was a trans girl, hadn't even hit puberty. And she was about 10 or something. And 
She won this race in WA. It was a cross-country race. And one of the politicians over there, Erica Betts, far right-wing conservative. Um, He's Tasmanian. Yeah, well, well, it was it was one of the, I think it was one of the Abetz. Well, he might be Tasmanian, but he was going off about it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, he was going off about it in the media. And I'm like, she hasn't even gone through puberty. What? She wouldn't have any advantage. Like, girls and boys play rugby league against each other up until 12 years of age. Mm. So, it, and then, then he started talking about change rooms and, you know, all that sort of stuff. For cross country, do you need to go into a change room? You know, like, as a 10-year-old? Like, um <laughs> You know, and, like, and she's probably more terrified of the change room than, than I would be. Exactly. exactly. I know, exactly. And um and you know, I I didn't see the appearance of the girl, but I mean like most of these young girls they don't kids don't look any different like if they're um you know grow their hair out and this and that, and they're not dressed in boys' clothes and things like that, you know, so they just probably just fit in as a girl anyway. But, you know, obviously they found out that she was trans somehow and, you know, and then decided to pick on her. And I'm like, where do they, where do, where do they ever stop? <laughs> they just don't want us existing in society. So, sorry, I get, I get quite um, vocal on this subject, but um, I do feel it personally when I see articles that are, are written. I know Noah does too, and he's not he's not even trans. He's oh no, I don't. Like that's part of my privilege is it's not me they're attacking. It's yeah. it's you, and I think it's horrible. You have to live it. Yeah, and every time I see it, it triggers me. You know, it's like oh, again. But they have become less. I think though, I must must admit those articles have become less over time. So that's one good thing. So I think people now realise that you can't really well, not that they can't say it, but they're starting to lose a little bit of um, favour and maybe, you know, people are starting to call them out for it. So that's that's a hope. And you got people like, you look at the media, people like Tracy Holmes and, you know, even my lecturer from Maclay, um, my sports lecturer from Maclay, um, Amanda Shalala, and they're all great um, transgender advocates, as, as you are, Noah, you know, through the work you do. So, you know, so the media is slowly evolving and becoming better because they've got better people in there on about our issues so, so just to open never ever worry about being too passionate uh, about this topic um something that both of you have touched on i think again just you know coming from my own background which is in um kind of strength sports which is about machismo uh, area the idea of like all shapes and sizes you know regardless of male female binary etc something that was so interesting looking at transformer by janae crock is she mentioned, and Caroline, you've mentioned this, you know, as you start to do the hormonal therapies, your strength starts to lessen, your, so your, your muscle density starts to lessen. And as a powerlifter whose you know, athletic career is measured in how much she squats, how much she benches, how much she deadlifts, Janae talked about you know, the tension between excelling in the sport as you know, a physically imposing woman, because you know, Janae, I think, deadlifts something like 500 pounds, but you know, like just monstrous numbers anyway. She mentions the tension between, you know, trying to appear as feminine as possible, but still wanting to actually be as strong as possible. And that she felt a tension between, like, I want to be the best athlete I can be, but there is this tension to appear feminine. And something that was fascinating from Transformers, she mentioned, you know, talking to other female powerlifters who are cis um, female powerlifters. And they mentioned this tension between 
trying to appear as feminine as possible while also trying to be as strong as possible because in powerlifting and bodybuilding there's this kind of rooted idea of you know the masculine woman like you know the female bodybuilders appear too masculine female powerlifters appear too masculine i am using the terms that the critics and trolls would use for want of a better phrase but again noah you mentioned in the article and carolyn you've mentioned this as well that there does seem like theoretically to be those constraints on women's sport in general between that tension of appearing as feminine as possible but also being really good at your sport and the shapes and sizes um seems to be something that's very problematic for women's sport in general but physically larger you know stronger more muscular trans athletes seem to really be a lightning rod for criticism so i'm wondering if Noah, maybe you could touch on it theoretically and then um carolyn you can touch on it from like a, a lived experience because as you say you know, going into rugby, it is a more physically imposing, you know, there's more physical strength needed. And again, just from reading and knowing tangentially about Janae's story, I just found it so fascinating that the struggles that she was going through, she had a light bulb moment where it was emblematic of her broader field in powerlifting. And it just seems to be something that, you know, when you attack trans women for being too masculine, and again, I'm using all this in air quotes, you are also limiting, like you're, you are limiting the field in and of itself. So it's the attacking the trans athletes is attacking the possibilities for women in that sport in general. Um, and that's so I'll zip and maybe Noah theoretically and Carolyn from lived experience and then decide uh, to wrap it up. I mean, that's the big picture, isn't it? That's where all the anxieties come from, isn't it? The anxieties are people like the, uh, there's women and there's men. And this is what women do. This is what men do. I mean, Judith Butler, the gender performativity. And, you know, there are certain sports that traditionally women were allowed to do and traditional sports, traditionally they weren't. Rugby was one of the ones that they weren't supposed to do. And, and so already by having a women's rugby in general, you're destabilizing those, those boundaries, which creates anxieties. And I, look, not my field, but I... I'm aware that in the past there were certainly debates in certain sports about the idea of women being allowed to do them and, and having women's categories and again not my field but I know that 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 has happened and now when trans women want to participate all of a sudden that creates more anxieties because it's it's challenging binaries it's and this creates anxieties it creates anxieties for cis women it creates anxieties for cis men and Oh, uh, look, I don't, I mean, I, I would A, need to have a bit more of a think on this and B, need to like, we could talk for hours on this, but I think a lot of it does come back to, to, to the rigid cultural and social constructs of gender in general, where sport fits into that. The pressure on, say, women, be they cis or trans, that by virtue of participating in a particular sport, they're already going against the dominant constructs of femininity and how they navigate that. And let's put the flip side on that too. You know, sports like let's say um, figure skating or gymnastics, when men participate in that, they have that same flip side of having to still prove their masculinity while participating in a sport that's considered a bit feminine. So, you know, it does work both ways, but yeah, trans, when trans people be the trans men, and we haven't talked much about trans men in this conversation in, in part because the, the debates aren't about them because the so-called advantage doesn't exist for them, but I don't want to ignore them, but, but say that they are important and that would be yet another discussion. Um, so, but, but yeah, the trans is yet another destabilizing of binaries. It's another destabilizing 
of long-held ideas about sex and gender and the body. And that's one of the reasons why it creates so many anxieties. I don't know if that answered your question, but it's a start, but I'll throw it to Caroline, please. Yeah, well, no, um, that, that's really good, Noah, because I attended a 50-year reunion, uh, or 50, actually, it was when we all turned 50. So we had a GPS, the GPS schools up here. It's all the private schools, um, the TOFs. So um, Joey's, King, Scott's, um, Riverview, Sydney High, um, Grandma, Newington. There is one other, Shore, I think, Shore School. So all the GPS schools. And we had a 50 years. So when you turn 50, they have this, this GPS challenge. And we all went to Riverview College, uh, St. Ignatius College, which is my school's um, arch rivals and nearby neighbours. We're Hunters Hill there, Lane Cove. And they did an article on me, um, the Telegraph. I was page three girl in the Telegraph. Um, so like in the old days, they used to do, but um, I wasn't wearing any bikinis. I had my old school blazer on. And, you know, they're quite happy to talk about me playing sport in a male environment. And, you know, they'll go on about, they, would, they talk about the history of me running for my school and playing football for my school and how, but I find they don't, it's sort of always they focus on that. They never, they never want to focus on me as a trans athlete. This is a conservative press. I'm not talking about mm. the ABC or Tracy Holmes and that because they will focus on that. But the Telegraph there, Rupert Murdoch owned. Um, whenever they've written stuff about me, it's always been around my boarding school or me being mates with wallabies or things like that, wallaby players, you know, and things like that. So there's that sort of, as Noel was saying, there's that rigid, you know, it's only really worth reporting on if it's, if it suits our agenda. So, and I think that is the whole thing about coming back to trans women. It's, it's just like, know your place, you know, mm. and women know your place. And a segue back to what you were saying now in 1995, the Wallaroos played one of their first test, test matches against the Black Ferns, New Zealand Black Ferns. Um, I think women's rugby in this country started in about 1993, formal games and things like that. And um, and they had an horrendous time on that plane. And there were commentators and for work for commercial channels and this and that. Get off the plane. You shouldn't be here. Why are you playing a test match? Women don't play rugby. And I, I know because some of, those, some of those women ended up playing with me 10 years later. And I read an article about it and it was just horrendous, you know, like, so I think it's like, know your place, you know, you're, you're a female. It's also, I think for trans women, you're really a man. So know your place. You should just stay at home and not play sport. You know, you've done this. You should, you should park, you should um, park your sin and stay at home and which is fine for now because we're in um, lockdown. <laughs> But, but, you know, so it's that. But, you know, like, um, you know, and, and it's funny because I play lawn bowls like my Lonolina Tame. I haven't told anyone there I'm trans. So I'm still fighting that battle whether I don't think they'll care. But, you know, like, um, I think some of them know. But, um, and I've been careful not to put things on my Facebook page about me being trans because I'm so worried, you know. And, and here I am, an activist, you know, so you know there's still that um worrying about what people think and that it never goes away so mm. but getting back to the yeah it's just two 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 genders and you and it's so rigid still you know we're in 2021 so 
yeah, I probably waffled a bit, a bit too much now, but so I'll hand back. <laughs> no, that's perfect. So I'm conscious of times and I've already taken uh, a lot a lot of both of your time. So maybe to wrap things up, if there's anything I maybe should have asked or if there's any projects you want to highlight, if Carolyn, you want to highlight the documentary or if no, you want to talk about the future of your project, um, please feel free and then we can uh, say our goodbyes. And I think it's like coming up to eight o'clock. Um, your time so we, we can hopefully get you sometime in the evening to unwind as well in brief i'd just say like i said the sport was a smaller component on this bigger project on australian trans history and um i've finished the, the there will be a book coming out of this in a few years i finished the introduction today but i've still got a lot more to write but um it, yeah um thanks so much i'd say thanks to having me um as a as a um what's the word like a faux sport historian today um <laughs> pretending i know what i'm talking about but so that's all i'll have to say is my final comment <laughs> Caroline, you, know about you, us. <laughs> you know about us noah true it's true like that's the whole reason you did the project so um yeah and for me um yeah well i mean my documentary is not on trans but it's called is this queensland in the 20s and um it's been at some film festivals i think it's on universal cinema the actually someone wants to watch it universal cinema if they look that up in caroline late my name will pop up if they want to watch the film um yeah and i'm doing some more docos on masters athletics but i do want to do a transport one and I'm um, looking at working with Jackie Harper-Grubb, who's a trans woman uh, football referee. So she's in the States. So, and she's in the South, but she's more over towards, I think, Carolina way, but I can't quite remember her state. But um, yeah, we're looking, because she's got a media background too. So we're looking at doing some stuff together whenever I can get out of lockdown and get across to America and um, do some stuff. So, <laughs> so yeah, so that's all my stuff. Um, yeah. So, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing your stuff, Noah, and yours too. Thanks, Perfect. Thanks so much. Yeah, as a final note, I'll just remind uh, listeners that Noah Reisman, A History of Transgender Women in Australian Sports, 1976 to 2017, it's just been published uh, in Sport and History. It's a fantastic article that I think just wonderfully melds, you know, documentary research with the oral histories, which give it that little bit of oomph and that lived. Uh, experience. I really did enjoy the article. I've really enjoyed um, this uh, interview, this podcast. So I'll finish again just by saying thank you so much and hopefully you get some time uh, to unwind.